0: Let's see if we remember how to do this. Uh, Three, two, one, and record. Sweet. Where we have been at? This is your PillPod, your Friday, your weekend, critical theory and philosophy podcast. Uh, Most Fridays, not the last three, because I (laughs) left the province. And when we were going to record last week, the PillPod experienced an outbreak of Omnitron. (laughs) We're not pointing fingers. Actually I can point fingers. This is an auditory (laughs) medium, so I'm pointing fingers. Omicron. (laughs) Isn't
1: that right? No, it's no, it's Omnicron, isn't it, Victor?
2: No. No. Like
1: Unicron? Omnicron? I'm pretty
2: sure it's it's Omnitron.
1: Omnitron. Omnitron. Okay, yeah, we'll settle on that.
2: And
0: we (laughs) have just restarted our lockdown. I looked at the um the strictness index for COVID lockdowns, and Canada is right up there with China for the the uh the strictness it's also, levels. It's,
2: it's also interesting how Australia was really strict and they just like decided to go in the completely opposite direction. They were just like, fuck this, we're tired, and they have like the most permissive now. They're just going for straight-up herd immunity. Jeez, that's odd. So
0: in lieu of being short-staffed for our triumphal resurrection, you have not now heard from us for a few weeks unless you follow Matt on Twitter <laughs> or if you watch my Patreon videos. Anyway, there's much to talk about since we last convened. There is one. Is this just
1: going to be the way it is now, like a council style format where we discuss the orders of the day?
0: No, we just have to discuss the things Uh, that we that we missed after. But could we
1: format it like a council? Like I like the idea of like the Rivendell kind of model being our thing.
0: Well, this episode is about why democracy sucks. So for now, it's an authoritarian state. Um, (laughs) My name's on the podcast title, so there you are. We have one bright star in the dark sky, which is uh, Chile elected a socialist Democrat. Victor, I'm going to come to you later um, sure. as the as the most Chilean person here. <laughs> so you can allow that yeah, yeah. Um authority. Besides that, there are a few big media releases. First, of course, is the plastic pills video, which we never got to talk about. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Um, then the fourth Matrix, the twelfth Spider Man, and this other—what was that Netflix one? Um, don't, don't look, look up, up. Don't look up. So we uh, we're not going to talk about those all today, but we can uh, at least uh, reference it the fact that they the existed. Keep your road ahead and don't look up. <laughs> so all these releases were depressing, each in their own way, uh, including my video. The decline mm-hmm. of aesthetics is, being, is becoming self-aware because the thing we were lacking as consumers this whole time was self-awareness, right?
3: Mm. Of course.
0: Anyway, if we get through all that, then we have a provocative bit of political theory to read, uh, which argues that we really just need to suspend democracy for a little <laughs> while if we want to get everything in order. Sounds like a perfect solution to me, though. Uh, what could go wrong?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. That I hope we get to that paper.
3: Hot um, topic in the Twitter theory verse right now.
1: I, I should say I actually.
3: Not that we're I gonna get to I don't know that right I
1: agree now. with the paper. I mean, we'll get into it, but I do admire that somebody at least had the gall to write it. Because uh, you think to yourself, like, well, somebody at some point or another was going to get around to it. You just need required somebody with the right amount of audacity and the right amount of talent to actually put the argument forward. So. And the author's it, Chilean,
0: it, also. Well, he at least well, works at a Chilean university. In Chile. I'm, yeah, we'll
3: have yeah, to pick this up later so we yeah. can actually say what we think the author's argument yeah, was. Yeah, I don't think the argument and is wh- as strong. Are we disagreeing brain, yeah. agreeing No, I, I
1: disagree with it, but I, I do appreciate that at least somebody had the balls to just sit there and be like, you know what? Let's just fucking go there. Uh, right. We'll see if it works. And- it
3: remains unspecified, but as you know, Matt disagrees. All right. And if you <laughs> want to
0: see that article, you can find it on, <laughs> <laughs> on patreon.com slash plastic pills. Even if you're not a patron, this goes for most of the public releases that we have, because I can't attach a PDF to a Spotify release. So Ooh. they're there. If you like what we're talking about, you want to read the paper for yourself, it's a posted there
3: publicly.
2: Breaking the paywall. Ooh, that is some spicy, spicy law breaking right there. Well,
0: I, I think mean, the, is uh, is the journal
3: beat him to it because it's <laughs> been, uh, it's I think it's been de-paywalled for this. Oh, month. was it?
2: Okay, I didn't yeah, realize
3: that. Yeah, that's okay. what I, I checked the Twitter today, and Ross Mitigo was saying that the author. Anyway, anyway all we'll this and that.
0: more coming up on today's episode of the Pill Pod. <laughs> okay there's the intro we just we just (laughs) inserted it you want the good news or the bad news you want the good news victor because you're the most chilean one here this news report falls to you what happened in chile
2: yeah so i think is, is his first name gabriel gabriel boric uh who is of i believe croatian descent originally um 35 years old so he's my age uh, was elected president. Um,
0: Damn, you're 35.
2: Yeah, uh, you know I don't know that much about Chilean politics, but but I I do know that like it kind of came down to uh, two candidates, and one was basically like a Bolsonaro-esque proto-fascist, and then the other one was like a socialist, Boric, this young socialist, and he won. So we'll see how that goes. I do know though that like kind of a less reported story is the the election of the par- parliament, the, uh, and the senate both are dominated by kind of neoliberal centrists. So I don't actually know how much power Boric is going to have to enact changes. That said, I don't know exactly how their legislative like, process works. I know that originally they were modeled after the United States. So based on that, that usually means that the president doesn't have that much power to do whatever he wants, Um, compared to like a Canadian system where the prime minister, if he's by virtue of being prime minister, you basically control the house. So you get to pass whatever you want. I don't know how much power he's going to have to enact change, but it's definitely been a strong, a, a large, like more morale boost. It's also, I believe one of the biggest margins of victory in Chilean history in a long time. It was like a 10% margin. Um, but on a personal note, uh, I will say that, um, you know, a lot I've mentioned before on the podcast that a lot of my family has kind of like some right-wing sympathies, um, and my family owns uh, like a farm kind of in the south of Chile. It's, you know, it's not an industrial production. It's like kind of a, a small family farm where they grow eucalyptus trees and pine trees. And now they've been growing some avocados and stuff like that. And um, and they, I think it's been in my family for close to 100 years. But now I like I actually just got a, a phone call from from my mom. And she was saying that my uncle is super worried because apparently the election of Boric has empowered some some radical indigenous groups. Who have been going and forcibly st- like retaking farms? Uh, oh, wow. So so they're worried. He's actually worried that there's going to be violence and that some of his neighbors have had the, these indigenous groups come and present them with papers. I don't know what that means, saying that they're that it's going to be their land now. So I don't know exactly what that what's what's going to happen with that. Uh, you know, on the topic, if we eventually get to the paper. Uh, it talks a lot about legitimacy, and, I, and the one question I had was like, well, there must be like some kind of due process, right? And, and I know that there there is a history in the south of Chile of kind of illegitimate, non-due process. Uh, you know, it's possible. I don't know that much about the history of like the, the ownership of the land. I know it's been in my family for 100 plus years, but you know, it's possible. I have no idea that maybe it was taken like unjustly, and if that's the case... The landed aristocracy is worried for their necks. Yeah, to mm-hmm. be it's fair... A-
1: it reminds me a bit of that Princess Bride moment uh, where you see um, what's his name? The little bald dude sit there like, how dare you try to take what? How, try, how dare you try to steal what I've rightfully stolen? Right. It's like, oh.
2: I mean, I don't know, though. I don't know what the what like it, it would be a big assumption to say that it was taken illegitimately. I don't know that. Right. I mean, it's possible it was. It's possible it wasn't. There was a history in that area of when Pinochet came to power, where under Pinochet's regime, which was in the 70s. Land was taken from indigenous people illegitimately, but my family's farm was not part of that. Like I said, it's been in my family for over 100 years, so so that it has nothing to do with Pinochet.
1: No, absolutely. I, I will say the other bit of good news is uh, his election followed the decision in 2020 to scrap uh, the Pinochet-era constitution, uh, which yes. was designed to be kind of the paradigmatically uh-huh. neoliberal yep. document. So Chile's been scoring a lot of points lately, uh, and it is kind of a bright spark uh, in an increasingly dark world, so mad props to chile for that um yeah totally totally as you were pointing out i all joking aside there are definitely a lot of complexities there that need to be accounted for because i definitely think that like a resentment driven politics uh that basically says screw you uh to a bunch of people is really the best way to go
2: yeah cautious optimism yeah i would say cautious optimism Cautious optimism and uh You know, uh, hopefully it leads to some institution building that 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 is like more just and and creates like a a more a better functioning country that that, you know, isn't based on neoliberalism. But we'll see. It remains to be seen.
1: I do want to point out my favorite tweet about this event, uh, which was from I think it was a Washington Post analyst uh, that I responded to uh, where he just tweeted out. Chile, don't elect a leftist. Uh, You don't understand what a terrible precedent uh, for violence and corruption that is. (laughs) He just immediately got piled on by people being like, yeah, that's kind of almost like sitting there and beating the shit out of somebody, being like, why did you make me do this to you, Chile? You knew you weren't supposed to elect a leftist. Now I have to coup you again.
3: (laughs) Hot take alert. Anyway, I
1: I saw a number of different reactions uh, from center-right commentators that were... In the same vein, and it did frustrate me a lot because <laughs> say whatever you will about Allende, uh, it's not exactly like he royally screwed the country uh, and sort of disappearing a whole whackload of people. Well, for,
2: for me, it was also like, and my brother and I were talking about this over the holidays, actually, and it's like, yeah, even if you're like a bit suspicious of like the Latin American left as being, you know, not necessarily having a good track record of being functional. Like, you know, when the option is that versus caste, who is like this proto-fascist, it's like, it's, it's not even a choice, <laughs> like, like, yeah. you know, and, and you, and we saw that in the results. I mean, we saw that, that it was a 10% margin. So like, it doesn't really matter. You can have your misgivings about Latin American socialists, but you know, there wasn't, uh, the, 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 when the option is, is, is a Bolsonaro type or that, I mean, it's just, uh, it does, it's not a hard decision. I think
3: that's, that's interesting to me because I hear that South American, uh leftism is some of the strongest in the world um
2: well it's strong it's strong like in terms of cultural but like in terms of the track record of like turning a country around to to have functional egalitarian institutions like i don't know how 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 good of a track record it's been at raising like reducing income inequality and and raising people out of poverty
0: well they never had much of a chance you know
3: in this hemisphere how do you do that with constant meddling um, from, uh... we
2: can bl- I'm just saying we fine. we can blame it on on whatever factors and like yeah there, there's validity to that but but I'm, I'm I was only saying like you know you can have your misguided like it was kind of like giving an olive branch to the other side and being like okay fine like you you don't like the left but why would how could you vote for this other guy that's kind of the point yeah. right it's I like mean, it's like it's not so much like trying to be have it it's more like the my brother and I were talking about this in the context of like our uncles who we don't agree with politically And it's just like, how could you stomach voting for this guy, Cast That was kind of the context.
1: Yeah, my experience with it generally is uh, something akin to like the career of Evo Morales. I think Morales actually did a lot of good for the country. uh, And by most metrics, he actually did raise people out of poverty. But then he quickly became autocratic and tried to run for more terms than he should and began corroding democratic institutions. And it's unfortunate because you think if you just decided to leave after two, three terms, uh, you're... Perrier would have been pretty unambiguously hailed by the left as like a triumph.
3: Well, speaking of countries like Chile getting back on track after American coups and political meddling, uh, Honduras actually just elected a leftist president, uh, first female president uh, in Honduras as well, named Gilmer Castro, who's set to take office later in January. This this has gone little remarked in media, interestingly enough, but... um, She's she out she outbid the uh the standing right wing nationalist party, uh and won with I think one of the highest uh, vote counts in their election history as well. So no, another pretty piece of good news from yep. uh, South yeah, American politics. Another leftist government. Uh, this is after the. 2009 U.S. aided coup that the uh, standing president um, and their party masterminded. Now this is getting back on track again.
2: Mm-hmm. We see
3: uh, we, we're seeing uh, South America throwing off these old uh, reins of neoliberalism and right wing nationalism. That well, uh, except for Brazil, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, Brazil still maybe has a bit of a ways to go. Um, but I mean, hopefully, it's a pattern that continues on.
2: Yeah.
1: I've been following Bolsonaro's career relatively closely. And what amuses me about him more than anything else. And I made this comment to my Brazilian friend uh, where I was like, he's basically like a living Chuck Norris meme. You remember they used to have those back in the day where it's like no germs would attack his body because it'd be afraid of fucking Chuck Norris's fists or something like that.
3: Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups.
1: Yeah, it's like literally the way he tends to respond to anxieties about COVID. It's like, oh, I spent years in the military. I'll be fine. No. God it you All know you need it's... To do, is do Wait, a billion push-ups every day. isn't he in the so
3: hospital actually... again for like the yeah, fourth time is. this year he yes yeah. he's got uh, he's got intestinal problems because of the <laughs> stab wound he received a couple years ago he may be immune to germs like Chuck
0: Norris but his shit is gonna blow him up from the inside
2: yeah yeah so I was actually gonna that that kind of brings um that brings to mind uh kind of like uh, this is this thing I was thinking about the other day just like in general how the right these days um the more reactionary right is really like like grabbing and running this kind of like i don't know um like masculinist politics this this like politics of just like hyper masculinity and uh, it was kind of funny there's a guy i don't know who people are that familiar with but there's this dude uh uh, jack murphy who's, who's got this youtube channel he's kind of like part of i guess what they call the manosphere he's got like i don't know a million subs and he like writes about like, he has this like community called like the liminal order and it's like about men reclaiming their masculinity and he talks about how he used to be an Obama voter but then like he just like Trump kind of reawakened in him like this sort of like I don't know if it's Trump alone but anyway the point is like he recently got canceled by his own uh, viewers because um, it came out that uh, he had written an article maybe in like 2018 where he talked about when he was still anonymous people didn't know who he was he was like on the manosphere and he wrote an article basically arguing in favor for the joys of cuckolding of like having uh (laughs) having 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 your your girlfriend get fucked by another guy and like kind of like the surprising enjoyment of that so like that came out and then all these like manosphere like hyper masculinist right wingers were like you traitor like how could you be how you're literally a cuck you know what i mean <laughs> and uh so that was very very amusing um well i have to say very, i've
1: never really engaged those types because they kind of frighten me a little bit just yeah. because do you i know do you that mean anybody... the
0: manosphere types or actual cuckolds no the, the manosphere
1: <laughs> because every time i encounter one of them online i just know for certain that he has a way bigger penis than anybody else that i know just fucking like Gigantic, or else why would he be there? Uh, and actually, and I just can't actually, face up to something that intimidating.
2: And actually, the reason why that came out was because he was on some other like right wing talk show, and so and this one of the the host, this woman was was reading kind of like the chats or whatever on YouTube, and somebody asked, it's like, you know, ask him about the article, ask him about the article, and like she was <laughs> like, hey, like what's the deal with this article? And he fucking lost it. He literally said fuck you for asking me that how the fuck like da- how the fuck do you like you know where do you get off asking me a question like that and like his reaction just like added like basically spilled gasoline on the fire
3: mr dick and Bowles says hey jack <laughs> see she shits what she does she does this
0: like she reads it like that's normal like it's not even she's not even saying like, i'm not gonna skip the name she just goes mr dick and said
3: could you please clear up the <laughs> cuck article you wrote
0: i am not gonna
2: talk about Again? this okay. and basically you know what fuck you me. For bringing this up right here and right now, me. why? Why are you doing this to me?
3: I didn't know that. I didn't know mm. what it was.
2: Well, just use a little bit of fucking common sense.
3: Sorry, apologies. Yeah, fuck, uh, you, fuck
2: you. Elizabeth, heartfelt.
3: Elizabeth, uh, Harrison says gonna uh, gonna miss the show, but have a good break. I H T A C. What's that? <coughs> <laughs> <coughs> what?
2: Nothing. I'm just guy. I, I literally was just coughing. It's just an inconvenient cough. <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh my god. Well, that's what I say when people ask me about my master's research paper anyway, so <laughs> it's not such an unusual reaction
1: We all know that the best way to respond to anybody who's trying to troll you on the internet is to really blow up, get extremely angry uh, and just start ranting and raving about everyone and everything
3: It's uh, yeah.
0: guaranteed to make you look cool
3: That's how you come off the best I'm pretty
0: scared of that big dick energy, to be honest. I'm too much of a coward to tell a woman fuck you to her face I need, that, I need that brave dick energy.
1: Yeah, well, understandably, right? Like you just oh, watch yeah. them and you're like, man, that guy just slays with women, slays in life. Uh, probably has got a fat bank account. There's no way I can compete with that.
0: Yeah, I'm racked with anxiety around men like that. My hands shake, uh-huh. yeah. they are this master signifier. <laughs> They're the non-castrated, purely positive signification. There's
3: nothing above that. Those skeletons won't stay in the closet anymore. They're ruining good manosphere careers. <laughs> the way back machine is cancel
0: culture You can't, <laughs> can't good, write a paper
3: about your wife getting fucked <laughs> by another man without the entire bro squad finding out well, Even if, yeah, he loses his,
0: if, he, if he loses his entire following, his, his YouTube career, he's still got that big dick to I'd also like on. to
1: send a shout out to all of our listeners and just remind you that we are a sex positive channel So if your idea of a good time is watching your partner uh, get fucked by anyone or indeed anything else, uh, we strongly encourage you to do it and feel no shame at that. We are not a sex-positive channel. <laughs> no. How are we not a sex-positive
0: channel? We've,
1: we've, <laughs>
2: we've never addressed this. I'm asexual. We've never addressed You're <laughs> anti-, anti-
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'm anti-sexual. Not anti-sexual, not anti-sexual, just a body liberated from its organs and I don't want to hear about yours neither.
1: <laughs> anti- <laughs> we're an anti-sexual podcast. So that'll get us far. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right it's the new way
0: no sex ever and don't jack off either because it'll ruin your energy
2: <laughs>
0: no
3: fap
2: no
1: fap. hey that's what emmanuel Kant told me to do as long as i'm not married i'm not allowed to so i take him at his word on that
3: cobra kai teaches abstinence
2: <laughs> all right moving okay. on so what's next what's next i what's think we next? have uh well i want to talk about your video pills because we didn't get a chance to talk about it
0: I'm glad that you said that because otherwise it sounds like I just want to advertise my video well, but th- you actually I mean, had so, something to say about it so
2: you know I think I just think it was like a very salient critique and I, yeah. I, I was interested in a lot of the reaction to the video so obviously like for those who haven't seen it although I'm assuming if you're a listener there's a good chance you know you've watched it and I think you you very nicely uh like I didn't even know that the CIA report existed right a CIA report I guess when was the report written it was it in the 85 80s something. right so so they looked into radical leftist theory, right? To kind of see the extent to which it might be a threat. French uh, specifically. Right, French specifically. And I think they concluded very amusingly that, and I think probably plausibly, <laughs> that it's really uh, not a threat. And if anything, it's kind of helping them. And it's like, we don't need to worry about radical theorists because they're not really a threat anymore, right? After the failure of of, of May 68 in France. <clears throat> and kind of yeah. like, the and I, and I think, you know, what's interesting to me is like, you, you know, my, one of my reactions to it is, you know, in some ways, like the these French theorists, <clears throat> I feel like they're intellectually, it's a sign that they're intellectually honest, because I think that if you're an intellectually honest thinking person, and like you see what happened in the Soviet Union, you kind of have to, like, uh, revise, I think, right? Like, to me, I was oh, like, yeah. of course, they will. These are smart people who are thoughtful. And they saw what happened. And yeah, it's going to lead to, it's going to lead to this internal debate, uh, theoretical debate. But to me, that's just a sign that these people these, these theorists, they were never meant to be, um, you know, uh, like their primary role was not meant to be praxis. You know, it's theory, they're theorists, they're thinking about these things. And when you think, and that's like the main thing that you do, it's hard to avoid. Uh, it's hard to ignore these things and just be like, no, no, we have to act no matter what, it doesn't matter. Screw what the Soviet union might've done. Screw what, all these other things we have to act. And it's like, well, of course they're not doing that. They're theorists first. Right? So, of course, they're going to think these things through carefully and realize they have to revise their thinking. And, yeah, that's going to lead to infighting. And, uh, you know, so that, that was kind of one of my thoughts about it.
0: The Athenians did think they had to kill Socrates. Well,
1: he was annoying and he deserved He killed it, himself first. Nobody likes someone it... coming around asking a bunch of questions <laughs> that nobody wanted answering. Uh, but, but I thought the most interesting part of your video that uh, kind of speaks to your point, Victor, was when you were talking about Althusser uh, hmm. and the May 68th strike. Uh, Because I didn't know the fact of this, that um, I didn't know that he was a member of the Communist Party uh, in France and that he was pretty active and occasionally could be a little too acquiescent to the Soviet Union. Uh, But I had no idea that he told the students to shut it down in May uh, when they got some concessions um, on labor rights and wage increases. Uh, And they said, we want to carry on and see if we can actually enact something like a genuine revolution. And his response to them, how did you describe it, was... Uh, to characterize them all as like puerile adolescents uh, with not Mm. a brain in their body and that they should go home uh, and just accept what they've got, uh, which is really counterintuitive when you think of the radical kind of tone of a lot of Althusser's writing. Yeah,
0: Althusser Althusser had a mental breakdown. Um, He struggled with depression and I guess some sort of psychosis through his life. And he was in the hospital when that happened, but he wrote in a journal article in Pensee after that, You know, the kids had gotten out of hand because he was like, he was a loyalist, right? He said, he he kind of didn't even remark on the morality of of the French Communist Party. He just said, I'm a French Communist Party member and you all should be too. It wasn't even like, let's evaluate these claims. And in a sense, you got to, you know, give some respect to that because it's fidelity. Um, But in another sense that alienated him from the younger generation, especially the the dudes that we talk about a little more often. Of in here. course, yeah. the
3: thing everyone knows about Althusser is he supposedly killed his wife. Oh yes, got away with murder.
2: Yeah, he did. He did. Actually, my um, kind of my mentor and undergrad, Geraldine Finn. Her 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 main book that she wrote as an academic it was a collection of her essays, and it was literally called "Why Althusser Killed His Wife." And, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, and, well, and it's, was
0: he, was he in a psychotic break? Because that's what that,
2: well, that's what they I've,
0: argued. It's.
1: That's what they And she did that actually happen
2: I mean she f- she found that reasoning quite disgusting that, that that there were all these all these French intellectual men who who, who came and tried to justify his actions uh, and like make excuses for him um oh, yeah, I don't I remember. remember one of her essays in the book is actually like directly addresses uh like that question and like kind of goes through the reactions among other French intellectuals to the incident of him killing his wife so yeah, I don't was... I, I can't remember it's been a while but so I can't really remember the details but I do know that The framing of her essay was definitely uh, very negative of the reaction to him murdering his wife.
3: Yeah, he pled insanity. But just to to bring it back anyway, is what I love about videos like this too is it gives you that context of May 68, right? Because as we get sort of farther and farther away from that historical moment, we tend to forget about the actual context of these people's ideas. And that May 68 was a huge turning point in the history of French thought, right? Mm -hmm. Like you never think about how different was like Sartre and Beauvoir and Merleau Ponty, the sort of more like fifties and early sixties fame academics versus the sort of post 68 wave of, of academics. Obviously there's a lot who traverse that boundary, Mm -hmm. but then the new generation afterwards that the video kind of enumerates anyway is, is, It's just really easy to forget how important these historical events are and when we read in the kind of theory vacuum when we're trying to learn all this stuff it just makes that's what i love about these videos too is that they put this stuff into context even though it wasn't the point of the video uh, yeah
2: the the sort of cia lessons part (laughs) i i totally agree i mean it because i was writing a chapter also on the radical democratic theory theory tradition uh, it was useful to to have that context because I know that they also, like, you know, Chantal Mouffe and Laclau and all these people, like, they really were also in that context of post 68, kind of like uh, reeling from it and trying to figure out uh, what to do next. And I think their answer ended up being ultimately unconvincing, but I think they're part of that whole conversation. Dude, do um, you I heard. wanted to, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, it's not like uh, these theorists are allowing us to forget that. Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, like Alain Miju wrote a, a nice little book. Uh, I don't really care for his metaphysics, but this was really enjoyable, called Pantheon, uh, which was about the history of contemporary f- French philosophy. And he framed it explicitly uh, in terms of reactions to me in 1968. Uh, and actually, it was kind of nice and or even touching, because at the end, he said, I'm really the last one alive from that generation uh, who has to carry the torch forward. Uh, yeah. And I kind of sat there thinking, I'm like, oh, I don't know, Balabar still here and all. But yeah, f- fair enough. You know. So it's I was. dwindling. <laughs>
2: So I was curious, pills, about your sort of also your impetus for making the video. How did how did that come about? What was what was your main kind of like? What was the intent behind? Maybe he's
1: a C.I.I. plant, (laughs) and we just don't know it because he's under such deep cover. Because
2: I want to I want to ask I want I want to hear about that from you, and I also want to talk about the reaction to the video in the comments too. There's some good stuff in there.
0: Yeah, I'd like to look at the reaction too. I think the reaction is more interesting as a as a text. But as to the impetus, I mean, it's not just one thing. There's a bunch of things. Uh, you guys probably know what more than one of those things is. I don't really want to say it on air. Oh, okay.
2: Was that... <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: Let's just say it's an encouragement for everyone, including us, to get our heads out of our own asses.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Fair
3: enough. Well, I mean, you could say... I mean, for me, the point really was the way that the left is doing a fine job destroying itself. And yeah. the CIA seems to recognize that and repeat some of the things that we tend to say today about postmodern theory is that it's too wordy, too complex, abstract. Vocab is crazy. They just said the same sort of thing. Like it's too, it's not clear. It's, it's a really abstract and detached. It's not going to have any kind of political efficacy. So we could safe safe to ignore yeah, yeah we also mean, get
0: I, We also get like uh pejorative comments about our about this podcast that were too like sock me. I'm not sure what that means. That's mainly Matt and I's fault. That's but mainly Matt and I's fault. <laughs> yeah, but like that's the thing. Matt's the most politically active, the only the one that like actually does organization on the regs and like talks to people. So do you want politics or you just want ideas? And then if you actually try to do politics. Then sockdems a pretty good option.
2: I'm they don't understand. just want ideas though; they want edgy ideas and like They're, radical ideas. Yeah, okay. I mean
0: that's
1: the kind of recurring joke that we came. Like, I mean, <laughs> more I radical. Why, more radical.
2: I, I, yeah, I should.
0: Yo, I took credit for that joke, but it, I think it was actually uh, Matt's originally. Or no, it's yeah.
1: me and Victor. Because I mean, this this was kind of our cheeky commentary on a lot of this literature, right? Where you always end with, "We need an ever more radical critique yeah, of an ever more X, more radical Y, and Z." And then, you know, of course, what you really just get is somebody kind of blending Nietzsche and Marx together and claiming to overcome both of them uh, in yeah. some way, shape, or form. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love all the people that were discussed in the video also. And it really hurt to actually hear them described in the way the CIA described, because you know, I've spent my time going through my authors, errors Foucault's music and stuff. But it's definitely hard to get a sense uh, that it accomplishes that much on the ground if you're looking at things in terms of. Tangible impact, and I think you put it really well, pills, uh, where you pointed out that it's not like we shouldn't do theory. it's an absolutely critical enterprise, but you do need to at least make some efforts to try to take that theory and bring it down to something that's tangible for ordinary people, like you described it in terms of policy, maybe we don't want to use that term, but I think that's a pretty accurate way of describing it, right you know if you adopt this kind of theoretical perspective or this ideological perspective, sooner or later there'll be better schools, better hospitals. Fewer people like Elon Musk wasting money building dick shaped rocket ships to go to the world uh, to the moon uh, when the world is burning, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Well, the
3: political um, shift was amazing that happened because you know before that period, right? Intellectuals in France had the ear of the government, and a lot of the government's policies had this sort of implicit, at least intellectual kind of patent on it, right? Like this this policy has been evaluated by so and so and this community of intellectuals and they give it the go ahead. And then after 68 too, they start to lose the sort of the ear of the government really. And then by the 70s, you sort of have academia and moving off in its own direction and not, you know, you have all these divisions that emerge. I thought the video describes that really well. And then you get these points in history too, on the SOC Dem point, where the difference emerges between social Democrats and communists, because there's these points in history you can look at where that division becomes clear. They tend to mingle with one another, right? But when you look at say the moment of um, 1968, of course, when I guess it was the social democrats and the communists, the social democrat, I don't know, one group wanted to accede to the demand or the, the pay rise and say that was good enough and stop. And others wanted to say no to that and keep Going with the protests, but ultimately, you know, the communist parties folded. Said we don't, we don't support the protests anymore. We're taking this pay rise and running with it. And that's one of those moments, I guess, when social. I, I'm not sure where the lines fall there, but if you look earlier at Germany during the sort of Treaty of Versailles time, you again had the sort of communists and the social democrats, and the social democrats wanted to, you know, ally with the liberals, and you know reconcile basically with the really really harsh measures of versailles whereas the more you know hardliner communists didn't want to do that and then again you get this sort of big division emerge and now today it seems kind of just common parlance on the internet if you're not radical enough then you're a sock dem or a radlib or whatever but i mean there's no clear distinctions in times of relative quietude we all intermingle and then in crisis times these divisions start to emerge and become very problematic
2: yeah yeah you um, can
3: you can see it
0: almost in the writing of this report the cia report as a sigh of relief because they describe (laughs) they describe in the past tense how it, it wasn't it wasn't just that the intellectuals were important it was like the everyday person knew what the intellectuals were saying they were part of the debate. They were concerned that their intellectuals had signed off on government policy before the government could do policy. So yeah, the government- like said, How many
1: people showed up to Sartre's funeral? You said like 50,000 or something like that? 50
0: or 60,000. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah.
1: crazy. Like, so that's celebrity they, numbers.
0: Yeah, there they they were celebrity numbers, but more importantly, the government knew that they had to listen to these public intellectuals because the regular person was. So, if, mm-hmm. the, if the public intellectual came out against your government, then you would lose support. So, they had to. But right. then after, this was the huge division here, is mm. after this point, they no longer had to. Now, it was like, Lacan is doing his TV special. Deleuze is going on TV and doing the ABCs of Deleuze or whatever. <laughs> and this became, yeah, the CIA says a media event. And that's why it feels like a breath of relief from this on the part of the CIA because they're like well, the government doesn't have to do this anymore because people aren't paying attention anymore. Now it's kind of just a uh, a novelty. And the other thing that I learned from this that I didn't know was the uh, Scandinavian, or they describe it as Scandinavian intellectuals, German or West German intellectuals, they were all taking a lead from the French. Yeah. So after this happened in France... Um, then you know it it collapsed a, a more general European critical left than rather just the uh, the French left.
2: Yeah. Well, and I And then know, they I can was... get
0: away. They, they literally said in that report, "Now we can get away with what we want in Latin America."
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. It was. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was astounding uh, to to read. After watching your video, I did I did go and actually read uh, the report myself. It's pretty short. Um, it's it's an interesting read. But um, I I was also kind of curious. You know how how, pills. How does this sort of fit into? I guess I see it, and you can you can tell me like where I'm going wrong or right. You know, I sort of see this video as part and parcel to what I sort of call the the pills doctrine of you know like ideas don't matter or, or you know kind of thing. It's like, and I guess you know how do you. It, 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 I guess it's it's further evidence of, of this like broad claim and maybe you can explain what you mean when you say ideas don't matter and like the context <laughs> that it's come up if you want. Um, I think it could be interesting. But, you know, also maybe your message, because I know that you love a lot of these theorists, right, that you're talking about. And, and like, and for you, I wonder personally, like, you know, the reason you like these theorists, right, isn't because their ideas matter for action in a way, but because they're just more interesting. They're just, you know, they're, they're more thoughtful, they're more creative. Uh, and like, when you know, when you say ideas don't matter, you're obviously not saying, you know, don't read these theorists, or like, in fact, you love these theorists, but like, so I don't know if that, that, that's kind of an incoherent question, but I was kind of trying to put these pieces in my mind together. Uh, uh.
0: I, I think the canonical pills doctrine, the statement of faith is going to be ideas don't matter asterisks. Yeah. And the asterisks there will do all the work. So mm-hmm. <laughs> practice the ideas, practice thinking, practice the difficulty and creativity therein, but they're not there for their own sake. It's the asterisk or the remainder there. What happens five seconds after you've read a book matters more than how well you can recite what you've read in a book. Because, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, obviously all that's true. I find those to be the most interesting. But this one, similar to how I did the, uh, the Chile video, I knew what the reaction was going to be, and mm. I knew it was going to be a litmus test, and everyone's going to find what they already believe in that video.
2: Yeah. So that's,
0: I think the response is more interesting than the video itself because, uh, I don't know if we break it down into like quarters, 25% are like, look, postmodernism shitty. They should never have broken (laughs) with the Marxist party. They should never have broken with the common turn. This is why Marxism failed in France. And then another quarter is like, well, thing they got a got away from those soviets because if it were led by the soviets they were murdering people in czechoslovakia of course that was a an immoral grounds for actually existing communism Mm etc etc what did you guys see in the responses there
2: well i mean yeah that's classic it reminded me of of when you released your Chile video (laughs) <laughs> you know my favorite responses were like fidel castro was right you know like <laughs> like, uh, like that's Fucking it I, Allende, I mean, you dumbass yeah you dumbass <laughs> like you need to take power you need to take uh, which maybe that'll actually lead into potentially our discussion about political legitimacy but it's like you know yes you should have taken power you know when you had the chance you know and like screw these democratic institutions that's why it's so dumb to do it that way yeah shutting down saw. the right-wing
0: press there would be exactly the, the, like the the key issue Exactly. Yeah. So
2: so I think like, you know, we saw similar reactions here where, where it's like, yeah, of course, you know, these, uh, the, the Marxists, the doctrinaire Marxists, I think, to saw your video and they were like, exactly. Of course. Uh, of course, as soon as you go away from Marxism, I, it's useless. I, uh,
1: since 1989, uh, at the very least, what we've seen is the left increasingly become really puritanical uh, and very intellectually minded not because uh, we feel that there's any kind of opportunity to actually see our ideas instantiated, but precisely because we don't think it's really possible that we're gonna see them instantiated. The left has kind of adopted this very defensive, almost scholastic posture uh, of being permanently in opposition. Uh, And you see that in a lot of the kind of debates that we fixate on, uh, which are very abstract, deeply removed from policy issues, and don't really engage normal people uh, all that often. Uh, and I don't know if you agree, but it's one of the things that I took away from uh, the report. And it did also make me think a little bit about some of the things we said about academics, uh, because one of the things that I find frustrating about the left is precisely that it is so dominated by people like us, academics. And there's nothing wrong with that, because I think academic theorizing is really important. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but you do see the kind of aesthetics and value systems associated with, idea- with academia really start to pollinate uh, the left generally. Uh, I mean, one of the few kind of hierarchical comments that's still acceptable in left wing circles is some combination of I'm smarter than you or I'm better read than you, because that's the kind of thing that academics value. Uh, And that's not the kind of thing I think we should be valuing as radicals or progressives. Uh, Definitely, we want to do the highfalutin theory. We should be doing the highest of highfalutin theories. It's a more radical approach. We need to find a way to bring it down to ordinary people and say, like, look, this is what it's going to mean tangibly if you try to change society in these kinds of ways, and this is what your life will look like five years down the line if you actually decide to support a democratic socialist candidate, Bernie Sanders, whoever. right? And we really don't do a good job of that because too many of us spend a great deal of time deciding whether or not we should be sockdem's or a Marxist or humanist Marxist or whatever it happens to be.
0: I, yeah. I think that there's a bad metaphor kind of latent in there that says we have to bring it down to regular people, I think Mm. that's like, it should already be there if it is even useful to the doctrine that we're saying we hold to in the first place. Like arguing arguing whether over the lint that fell out of Marx's toes and which direction (laughs) it fell, it's it's stupid, even (laughs) according to Marx. Well, but it reminds me. You realize
1: me of- he wrote a letter in 1847 that no one else has seen before, and that explains his whole theory. Yeah. And <laughs> once that letter is published, your entire interpretation of his work will change, and you'll realize that I was right all along.
2: Well, it reminds me of when we did our episode on on Mary and Marxism a little bit, right? Where it's like you know, like it needs to be brought down to, to the people or whatever. And I think like, you know, I think what Mary Ponte does pretty well in those passages we read is just talk about how, you know, revolutionary action is not something that's going to come because you have the right ideas, but because of like how your phenomenal world presents itself for necessities and opportunities for action. And that like, you know, the ideas and like arguing over nitpicking like what ideas, but rather like your lived world and like, what do you not have? What do you have? Like, that's kind of the source of action. Um, yeah. So That's why yeah.
0: phenomenology is first philosophy, and we need to start in the sense that is common before doing philosophy. Not do philosophy first, and then try to trickle down yeah. to common sense. Yeah, a lot. Uh, a of lot the, sorry,
1: a lot of
3: this depends really importantly on why exactly theory became so obscure in the nineteen seventies. After this moment, I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to explain, right? Because you know, the, the idea that, yeah, you need to bring it down and make it understandable and make it applicable to policy is obviously really important. And a lot of, you know, political science and analytic philosophy is designed for that precise purpose, for its applicability, the operationalization of its contents, uh, of its concepts and ideas, operationalize them easily. But why this really abstract, obscure the- movement in theory as well. How do you explain it? Like one take I could think of off the top of my head is that, you know, in, in 68, they tried to take Marxist ideas and operationalize them and it failed. Therefore we need to go to more obscure language so that this doesn't happen again. Because when you operationalize ideas and they fail, it casts doubt on the theory itself so we need to avoid that and, I, and i've also heard that said about adorno and and some of the frankfurt scholars as well why do you yeah. write with such a strange and obscure style it's because i don't want we don't want our ideas to be so clear that people can just grab them take them out of context run with them and apply them and then there'll be disastrous results and it will reflect badly on the uh, on the op on the original poster of the mm-hmm. ideas right it, so that i mean that's just one way of construing it i don't know if that's the right way but there's got to be some bunch of explanations like that that legitimate why you know theory took the turn it did in what is now postmodern theory right and to obscurity and abstraction as opposed to as opposed to what you might expect which would be a move towards clarity and concision and, and, and all that sort of stuff, right? Why didn't that happen and as opposed to what did happen, which is, you know, we got post structuralism and crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Can
2: I, I say, can I say yeah, first
0: on. before we go? Like, I'm not saying all philosophy should have something to do with policy. I don't know anything about policy. Yeah. yeah. I probably never no, will. No. What I think philosophy is for here, though, is telling someone you already care about this. You just don't have like this specialized vocabulary. Then you work up to the specialized vocabulary because it's something that people already care about. And they might care about in different ways. That's why you have different philosophies. They might have different emphases. That's why you have different streams of critical theory. But I think even critical theory or uh, post-structuralism at its most abstract is still starting with something that everybody cares about, no matter who you're talking about.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure, now, I w-
1: I want to frame it somewhat differently though, because what I found is there there tends to be this dialectic that occurs uh, in highly intellectualized forms of political agitation, uh, where on the one hand people theorize uh, about these ever more radical kind of transformations of society, uh, and then you know because their primary purpose is to be intellectuals. Uh, They think the easiest way to achieve that is through some kind of revolutionary break. Uh, And there's a lot of things about the aesthetics of revolution that are very prominent in the literature. Uh, And I'm not anti-revolutionary in the sense that I don't think we should ever have a revolution. Uh, I think we should. Uh, But the point that I'm trying to get at with this is sometimes all this kind of theorizing and the transition from thinking that the idealized kind of theorizing in your head can only be achieved through revolutionary agitation leads us to be uninterested uh, in the everyday, usually pretty banal activities uh, that form a lot of normal politics. Like any kind of activism that I've engaged in has usually involved getting a lot of coffee, getting toilet paper, uh, handing out pamphlets, dealing with an awful lot of trollish people uh, who don't want to talk to you, uh, repeating slogans over and over and over again. Uh, And that's a lot of what you have to do. Uh, And it's usually pretty boring and it's not very intellectually fulfilling, uh, but it's a necessary part of the process uh, of trying to get people agitated and convinced that we need to do something uh, about the world. Uh, and I think part of the problem with focusing exclusively on theory as the site for left-wing activism right now is it leads people to dismiss uh, a lot of these kinds of efforts as either beneath them or not really interesting or not uh, like sufficiently fulfilling. And we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, we should be doing a lot more to try to Emphasize how important it is for people to get involved, uh, to get their hands dirty on the ground, even if it's not the most exciting thing in the world, and even if it means you're probably going to have to wait a long goddamn time uh, to see any kind of results. Um, I think about the recent victory in Chile. I imagine that took years and years of activism, door knocking, tweeting—you name it—in uh, order to achieve.
2: Yeah, t- yeah. I mean, I think part, just to add to that too, like uh, you know, I, I I think you know part of the part of I guess the danger of theory uh, is is that like it kind of what well, we've talked about this before, but, but I think it just does tempt people towards a kind of purity where we're because the theory, I think you you talk about like optimal conditions and like, I think actually going out and, and doing like the organizing and door knocking and it's like, okay, well, whatever. That's like best case scenario. That's going to be like an NDP government in Canada, right? That's just yeah. going to be socked in bullshit. It's like best. So it's just like, why bother? Cause it's not going to be like the thing. And I think theory does have a tendency, can have a tendency leftist theory, uh, to, to just lead to that mindset where it's like, well, what's the point of doing that? Because it's just going to like, you know, you're, you're almost, you're actually just, you, you know, authorizing the existing power structures by participating in them, right? Like it, it can lead to that mindset. Not always. And I, don't, I think a lot of theories- This is why
0: ideas don't <clears throat> matter asterisks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, The The asterisks is theory is not the goal. Theory is the thing that wakes you up to the things you actually care about but yeah. never got a chance to because of the ideological apparatus that is your heir- at the moment. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I'll be the first to say, like, I prefer doing the theory myself, uh, as I imagine most intellectual types do, uh, to a lot of that activism, because it is so intellectually banal in a certain sense. Uh, Like during the election campaign, 90% of what I did was just telling people, okay, everyone, let's gather together and I want you to call 10 friends of yours and you tell them to get out there and you vote NDP. And if you have any questions, get back in touch with me because I got a million slogans ready for you to answer any of their questions. Like it's really rote and pretty boring. But it did make an impact. You know, we got some people to sign up. They agreed to vote for the new Democratic Party. We changed a few minds uh, on environmental issues. But it was not stimulating in any kind of way. Uh, although it did cause a lot of damage to my face because I had to smile so much, which you know isn't like me, right? Uh, and I think you know, I can understand therefore why it is that people would be reticent to do this kind of stuff uh, or think it's not necessarily beneath them, but not necessarily what they want to do. Uh, but I think. It shouldn't be dismissed either or invisibilized, uh, because I think a lot more people in theory circles need to appreciate all the effort that goes in uh, by activists uh, to try to actually bring a little bit of their dreams into fruition.
3: I think that point— I knew knew a
1: woman who just—all she did for 20 years was bring pencils to girls uh, in Chile. Uh, Sorry, not uh, Chile, in South America. That's all she did. Uh, And she probably helped thousands and thousands of girls by bringing them pencils, but it's not glamorous activity.
3: Right. I mean, that point is really important for whether or not you have reform or revolution in mind, because both take loads and loads of on the ground organizing and preparation and setting up things that will continue on into the future say after the revolution or things that will you know ensure the reforms don't get compromised into oblivion on the on the senate floor or whatever right do
2: you ever think though that like that dichotomy between reform and revolution is like problematic like like i I feel like I guess I often think to myself it that... Sounds like, like someone's re-
0: destined for the gulag there with that kind
1: of talk.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think well, well, so, no, too. We'll just, just... Reform
0: versus revolution is not dependent on the actions of the actors. It's dependent upon the conditions that are influencing, like, an entire... An, enough people to decide that reform or revolution is necessary. Yeah, I mean, It's I not often, just like... we spontaneously agree to do a revolution and then do it. That's never happened once. I mean, yeah, you well,
1: say I, that, that's kind of very close to Badge's uh, kind of messianic... Theory, fidelity to the uh, event. events. Well, I just
2: yeah. I just I, I just mean like I have thought I remember talking about this maybe with it might have been with those like um uh uh what are they called the the vanguard dudes they uh, they they're, 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 they're these like and and I think you know the leninists um, no they're just like these youtubers uh who who like who are kind of like oh. left it like leftists and and like are kind of like very anti-reform and like pro revolution whatever that means right and and I think you know I I the example like the concrete example i often like talk about is like you know i well, the reason i i was interested in andrew yang's like ubi policy of like bringing in ubi a lot of leftists were critical of it because they were like oh it's like it's it's justified according to like economic rationality so like you know we should we should go away from it and it's like yeah maybe but i, I guess the way i always look at it is like if there was a ubi it's like that that's that's going to create conditions to make like further revolutionary action easier right like when yeah. you give people more means like everybody more means where they can just like quit their job if they don't like it because there's like a ubi or something like that more power it just like enables people it creates more revolutionary potential i guess is my argument so i often feel like reform and revolution like are interlinked because like reforms could make the possibility for revolution like they're, they're they might be a condition of possibility for yeah
1: baskar sankara has a really good example that speaks to your point uh, in his book uh, the Socialist Manifesto, which I agree, think everyone should read. He's the editor of Jacobin. Uh, and he was actually on uh, the channel not too long ago. Oh, oh, uh,
2: fairly long time ago.
1: Yeah, fairly long time ago. Long, <laughs> long short story though, but one of the things that he points out is oftentimes uh, the Nordic model uh, is underappreciated when it comes to a revolutionary potential because the kind of story told about it is Uh, There were revolutionary movements in Scandinavia. They compromised on social democracy, and then eventually neoliberalism took place because they didn't go far enough. Uh, Actually, one of the things that he points out is in the 1970s, uh, there were many workers movements that wanted to go beyond social democracy uh, towards something like workplace democracy, right, where workers would actually own their companies. And there was a big push on their part to use the resources given to them by social democratic settings to agitate for that. Uh, But the state eventually said no, uh, because it decided to side with capital instead. Uh, And there was a big pushback against workers' movements, which included rolling back social democracy, because they said, people have too much resources and too too much time on their hands, uh, so they're starting to get uppity. Uh, We need to just push the whole thing back. Uh, And one of the points that he's making is you don't necessarily, if you look at this as a paradigm example, you don't necessarily need to see social democracy as compromised with capital. It can be laying the stage for a more sustained confrontation later on. Uh, We just have to try to be more successful uh, than the Nordic countries were in the 1970s and actually push through uh, towards something like workplace democracy or five minutes past capitalism or whatever you wanna call it, right? Uh, And I think you can see a lot of examples of that where people use the resources of reform to try to agitate for more reforms and more radical kinds of reform,
0: right? All right, this is a topic that is uh, rich, of course. Revolution versus Reformation. Is a step in the right direction <laughs> bad or should we just Reformation. accelerate? Reformation. <laughs> I, Reformation. Mean, I, so I mean, that's, at, that's uh, the uh, job of theory,
3: yeah. right, is to extract concepts and purify them and put them into opposition with one another. Reform yep. and revolution, wherever they go together, in reality, they can be separated in theory, just like democracy and authoritarianism are two right. extremely opposed concepts in everybody's mind. But they could need to be deconstructed. They need to be deconstructed. Like to be
2: everything's deconstructed. Hybrid.
0: Thank you for helping right. me with that segue, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> <need> democracy <laughs> yeah. or authoritarianism. So we are yeah. going right after talking about what will beat climate change. <laughs> right after talking about actually existing theory, we're now going to talk about theory theory in something that I think we need to be asking a lot more often. Um, this is Maybe we'll I, talk uh, about we'll talk about uh don't look up later, I think. Maybe on a, a different episode. Maybe different on the Patreon episode. episode. That will make sense. Yeah, we'll you know, do we'll a movie. We'll do a movie we'll... into this one. Don't look we'll up do a movie. works with this article, which is written by uh Ross Medilla at Chile, a Catholic I don't know, the Catholic University in Chile. Pontifico yeah. something something.
2: Yeah, it's it's like the it's the most prestigious university in Chile.
3: Politi- Pontifico Universidad De, De Chile, Chile, I think
2: it's yep. called. Okay,
0: yep. and he's
3: a junior scholar, right? He's an assistant yep. professor. And he says, if we're gonna do,
2: well, can I, if can we're to address article, climate change,
0: I'll give you the one sentence. Okay, then you can introduce all the context. If okay, we're fine. gonna do climate change, democracy has proven that it's not gonna work. So we should reintroduce the conversation of authoritarianism as a way to prevent us from all going extinct. All right, yeah. Victor, to you.
2: Okay, okay. So, I, I mean, this is an article that fascinated me. Like, as someone who's in a political science department, yeah. uh, in the political theory world, like, I follow a lot of people on Twitter. So, when this article came out, like, the political theory world, the political science world kind of went crazy uh, because it was published in sort of, like, the premier journal uh, in political science, the American Political Science Review. It's, like, considered kind of the most prestigious journal. And it's called Political Legitimacy, Authoritarianism, and Climate Change. And I think uh, there was a lot of like reaction to it. A lot of people were outraged that he was suggesting that maybe we can justify authoritarianism. So I thought that the article would just be like an interesting thing for us to discuss in kind of the context of talking about, um, you know, political action. And um, I mean, maybe I'll just read the abstract quickly because that kind of like gives you an idea. I think it's like a little bit more nuanced uh, than what Pill said. I actually thought the argument itself was in a way, obvious, like, so so like, but b- because it's focused on this question of political legitimacy. So just we're reading the abstract, um, it is authoritarian power ever legitimate, the contemporary political theory literature, which largely conceptualizes legitimacy in terms of democracy or basic rights, would seem to suggest not, I argue, however, that there exists another overlooked aspect of legitimacy concerning a government's ability to ensure safety and security. While under normal conditions, maintaining democracy and rights is typically compatible with guaranteeing safety. In emergency situations, conflicts between these two aspects of legitimacy can and often do arise. A salient example of this is the COVID-19 pandemic, during which severe limitations on free movement and association have become legitimate techniques of government. Uh, Climate change poses an even greater threat to public safety. Consequently, I argue legitimacy may require a similarly authoritarian approach. Well, unsettling, this suggests the political importance of climate action uh, for if we wish to avoid legitimating authoritarian power, we must act to prevent crises from arising that can only be resolved by such means. So, you know, I think the argument he's really making and he sets it up, uh, I guess, like before we open the discussion, I, I kind of just want to mention he he sets it up by talking about two different forms of political legitimacy, which, by the way, I think political legitimacy is like a really interesting and important concept to think about if we're like interested in politics. And he, he he frames it around two ideas. One he calls um, f- uh, foundational legitimacy uh, and the other he calls contingent legitimacy. And he basically says foundational legitimacy. He argues, and maybe we'll have issues with this, is, you know, like the, the duty of a government to basically maintain order and safety is like the foundational legitimacy, because without that. You can't have a state, you can't have a political society, because if if, if a government, if, if some w- way of organizing politics and association doesn't ensure people's safety, it just can't be legitimate. He argues it's like a condition of possibility.
3: That's that overlooked aspect of legitimacy is referring to, right? To ensure safety and security. Yeah,
2: and it's interesting because this is, is basically really what sure Hobbes is argues.
1: Overlooked. Yeah, that's what well. I was
2: well, at. well, I mean, it's overlooked. I think in the co- like, I think what's overlooked is the relationship between foundational legitimacy and what he calls contingent legitimacy. Yeah, that's
1: innovative. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, so I think that the the Hobbesian idea, right? Like to make like basically government, the the, the sovereign is is legitimate because he he it protects us from the war, off the war of, against, all, of against all, all, against all, all against all, exactly. Yeah. So, and and I think and then contingent legitimacy are like all the things that we have after that, like democratic institutions basic rights, all the things that maybe like our kind of like leftist politics want uh, is like, you know, like some method of 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 making our will heard and feeling like we have freedoms to do what we want. Um, but ultimately, he says all of that relies on foundational legitimacy. Um, and I think what I thought was kind of interesting is I think about some of like the radical political theory that I that I work on in my own um, research, like radical democracy and some anarchist thought, and I guess and maybe I mean, I've been talking for a while, but maybe you guys will agree or disagree, but I I sometimes wonder whether a lot of leftist radical theory just wants the contingent legitimacy, but doesn't care about the foundational legitimacy, or at least they think that it doesn't matter. They're like, we can have, you know, uh, democracy and, you know, and egalitarianism, and we don't need to worry about, you know, some state that actually ensures safety.
0: Um, Before we get to the definitions of these types of legitimacy, can you just give us the stakes of the article?
2: Well, the point of the article is really just asking us, like, when we have a moment of crisis, and actually he brings up Agamben, right, which we talked about in the early days of of, of our podcast. One of our first episodes was about Agamben's take on the COVID-19 pandemic as a state of exception, right? The the idea being that, like, when there's a a crisis moment, governments can use that state of exception to basically, like, withhold, uh, like certain like rights and democratic freedoms and stuff like that. I and, subtitled uh, you
0: know, this Agamben's nightmare right <laughs> under on my on my notes. But he's saying that the state of exception here is climate change. Exactly, right?
2: exactly. So climate change is the example he uses to say, look, like the chances of us actually solving it uh through democratic means, right, where we can all agree and and, and you know y- have all that kind of legitimacy that that intuitively we like 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 consent and Democratic deliberation, like the chances of that actually leading to climate change are so low that eventually maybe we're actually going to need to switch back to that foundational legitimacy where the government just uses says, oh, for us to actually be like a legitimate government, we have to solve climate change, like screw your basic rights, screw your democratic rights, because this is the foundational legitimacy. That's kind of how he argues it.
0: And one of his examples is from The Handmaid's Tale where it's obviously a dystopian <laughs> terrible fascist theocratic state but and they but they, but they cut carbon emissions by like 78% <laughs> 75% so No matter what bad they did at least they took care of the existential threat to the species.
2: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I don't know. And, and I think, and just quickly, like the reaction to this article, I think a lot of people were outraged. As I mentioned before, there's been a lot of like tweets kind of arguing about how he's trying to justify, I, I think at the end, toward the end of the article, he lays out some examples of things that could be done, like the, the what kind of way it might look like authoritarian action on climate change. Um, He kind of describes what it would look like, right? And he says, uh, where is it here? Maybe we could, you know, put put limits on meat consumption because that has uh, climate change. The government could just outlaw, you know, uh, the consumption of meat. Maybe the government could come in and uh, put limits on misinformation, right? So censorship on climate denialism, right? Like all these things he basically says might be necessary uh, uh, to maintain what he calls again foundational legitimacy to maintain preserving safety
0: for the human race <clears throat> yeah let's not
2: yeah. get but but i i just i kind of just want to know because our kind of like climate change like 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 the our main climate change guy here is eric and I, I was really curious what eric thought of this of this paper
3: yeah i really enjoyed having an intuition of mine as a non sort of political theory uh addressing environmentalism kind of person i i I enjoyed having that sort of put up here is to say that, you know, you know, authoritarian governments do have, you know, much more, much more room for movement when it comes to, putting, you know, restrictions on freedoms and and controlling markets and things like that in order to, you know, achieve some sort of goal reduction of carbon emissions or control containing a, a pandemic outbreaks and things like that. Like you would think that authoritarian governments have the lateral room to do that and that democracies do not because they operate slowly, everything calls for due process and input and that democracies are going to be fundamentally a lot less capable of responding to to emergencies and evolving situations than authoritarian governments because they can just pivot into you know different solutions because mm-hmm. they have a top down model as opposed to a supposedly bottom up democratic model and so it's really nice to have that sort of intuition yeah. in like formalized and investigated mm-hmm. and, and treated from a from a from the perspective of somebody who studies, you know, political theory, so I, I really enjoyed it in that sense. Um I mean, it was nice because as I was reading it too, I would think of an objection and then lo and behold, you know, the objection would sort of be addressed in a way, right? Like what about people who don't care about foundational literate, uh, legitimacy, right? What about people who say, as he quotes, give me liberty or give me death, yeah. <laughs> you know, those like dealing with those sorts of divergences from the line of thinking here is, is really interesting too because you know they are real sorts of perspectives people have some a lot of people seem to think you know i i would rather be dead than have my freedom restricted in any way and you know that's that's an actual kind of political subjectivity that you have to deal with when you're coming up with these sorts of i don't know how to describe it sort of these sort of more uh, abstract levels political theorizing yeah, that was, reminds me of Pills' videos are really just Rorschach tests to get people to react to things. There's nothing really there.
0: <laughs> uh, not phrase it like that. What I was what he saw, I could tell the author knew this criticism was coming about democracy, but he treats, and I think we all treat democracy as this sacred cow. The one thing that you can never question because it's written in the sacred text, democracy is a thing that we can never dispense with, which is kind of a weird idea because, you know, Hegel didn't, Hegel thought we could have freedom without democracy. Plato thought if we had democracy, we'd certainly not be free. Nietzsche thought democracy was just for for pussies anyway so there's a <laughs> there's an open question about democracy that the well it's the not ra- just democracy res- though too
2: it's also freedom that like like we, yeah. what like,
0: uh, well, the claim i'm making here i guess it's a semiotic case is that we we imbue democracy as if it's the only possible model of freedom that can exist um when i don't think that liberty and democracy are the same thing, especially if you look at actually existing democracies, as we've been talking about actually existing socialism, and that demands that you ally yourself with the common turn. Actually existing democracy is very undemocratic and also very unfree. Mm-hmm. So what what is it that we're defending as this sacred political theory um, line in the sand that can never be washed away by the waves because it's doing so well for us already?
1: I'd just like to make a historical point though, before we go too far down uh, that line of reasoning, which is that's really an unprecedented situation. Um, Robert Dahl, who was a very well-known political scientist and probably the world expert in democracy at the time of his death, he pointed out, and I think this is really true, that if you were to ask anyone up until about the mid 19th century, uh, what the worst system of government was, uh, and almost any educated person would tell you democracy. right? Uh, And this is a line of thought that goes really all the way back to Plato. right? Uh, where, you know, democracy is dispensed as demagoguery and the rule by the lesser over the better, you name it. And there are all kinds of objections of this form in the history, at least of European uh, or Western. Rule by uh, the the
0: uneducated mob is the Mm -hmm. the most common. So I I
1: don't want us to act like this isn't a fragile paradigm shift, uh, as though somehow this has been a sacred cow for a very long time. It's really quite unprecedented. It's new. Yeah. So and I, I think this is also why some people are a little bit reserved about these attacks on democracy, precisely because it's really only been in the last 40 years uh, that most countries in the world have even nominally become democracies. And I say nominally, right? And only again in the last 150 years, where you would see maybe 200 years, serious political theorists defended uh, as a viable form of government. Uh, Most of them, including plenty through the 19th century, would say, why would you want democracy? It's the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, Do you want Joe the plumber uh, telling you what to do? Fuck him. You know what I mean?
0: Do you political guys is it is there any case to be made that this is a product of the Cold War that's saying we are the shining city on a hill, Christianity is embodied in the United or the American state, and all the other bad ones are not democracies? Sure,
2: I think that's part of it. Yeah, there's but that's definitely part of it. <clears throat> but I did want to say like so just to kind of clarify sort of like what we mean because I think democracy. You know, I mean, it's a slippery term, um, but like in terms of what the author is actually talking about when he says kind of like the things that we normally think about as what he calls contingent legitimacy. So, you know, um, or in general, people like the dominant view is certainly that like political legitimacy requires. Uh, and this is like the more what he calls the moralized view. Right. Yeah. Um, consent, democracy, equal representation, protections of the individual rights, social justice. Or most often some admixture of these factors, right? So, so, so that's kind of like succinctly saying like what he's what he's after when he says uh, the, the kind of dominant view, the moralizing view, right? That like political legitimacy that you have to have that in order for something to be legitimate. You have to have some mixture of those things well
3: it's like it's like democracy and authoritarian have a common basis in foundational legitimacy right like authoritarian government you know any form of government has to have safety and security for its people right otherwise it's just a slave state like now, even hey, under now, authoritarians people are like i've nominally seen the mad max movies, to a Eric, certain that's not true. right well no, seriously, though, like like the contingent legitimacy is almost everything that's over and above safety, safety and security. Exactly. And in times of, like I said earlier, in a different context, but, you know, in times of peace and, and stability, right, foundational legitimacy kind of falls into the background. We're not so concerned about our survival and our yeah. safe, basic safety. We're concerned with our values and having those values reflected in the overall political conversation. So contingent legitimacy is a series of factors that are contingent upon the values and the sorts of needs and desires over and above safety and security that characterize a culture or a people in a time and a place and they're subject to change. And he seems to be saying that, you know, a lot of the things that we take for granted about democracy are actually contingent yeah. upon different value systems. So, you know, that everyone every human being is equal and has a set of basic rights would be a contingent legitimacy thing, which appears, you know, again in times of peace and and and, and lack of concern for our safety. You know these things seem like universals that they're just always true. How could I ever go to a place that doesn't value human rights? And then when in times of crisis or in, in ch- change, you know uh, those those things come out as you know contingent again. Like he says, and the found the the foundational legitimacy then comes to the fore. But I mean, yeah, well, yeah, that's. In, I, mean, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting. Part of the
2: he also mentioned uh, other examples of things that are that used to contribute to contingent legitimacy, right? He said, uh, you know, it used to be important that the leader, the king was part of some lineage, right? That, 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 that went back to, um, I guess, was it Jesus Christ or like, or, or Adam. had some to Adam, Adam, right? Yeah. To Adam. Right. So like, so like the closer that a king like was more legitimate, if you could, if you could somehow trace their lineage back, like closer back to Adam. I mean, if think yeah, that's a Roman joke, that's exactly what Robert Thelmer
1: did in De Patriarcha, right, which John Locke famously responded to. The whole point of De Patriarca was to say, like, look, you know, God gave birth to Adam, and God was Adam's daddy, and so God is in charge of Adam, but then Adam was in charge of Cain and Abel because he was their daddy, and then everyone's daddy kind of continues down the line until we have our big daddy today, who's the king, and he was granted control by his daddy, and he's supposed to be in control of all I mean mean. A lot of people have characterized this as a kind of green fascism. Uh, I don't yeah, think it wrong. is a kind of totally green fascism. I think this is just an argument for a kind of mildly liberal authoritarianism. That's a lot more like something what Jason Brennan would argue for uh, in Against Democracy, uh, kind of epistocratic rule by eco-elites, if you want to be critical, or eco-knowledgeable. But uh, isn't it isn't it also just
2: awesome. an argument about like this distinction about legitimacy too? He's kind of like, you know, if it's kind of like an observation about like, And I think like I was actually thinking about this in in the context of sort of like more like radical political theory, like leftist political theory. It seems to me, I mean, maybe this is wrong, but it it sometimes seems to me like uh, like some like radical political theory almost wants to deny uh, foundational legitimacy as like being like like the most important thing or like the thing that we're like. I mean, in some ways, are 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 anarchists not like denying uh, foundational legitimacy? Like that, like that. Well, the, like I the, think the, they have the, a
1: different conception of foundational legitimacy, right? One that's allocated le- an absolute autonomy. And I mean, we, we right. brought up Wolf earlier on and put on some. All right,
0: all right, all right. Let's not go further with the name dropping. I'm sorry, I know this is your area. Uh, <laughs> you have a lot to say about it, but let's just stick to the hypothetical of the article. Now we have a bunch of nominal democracies bumbling around at the climate change summit in uh, Scotland. Nothing gets done. Biden falls asleep. (laughs) Do we now get to do an authoritarianism for the good of all potential future democratic subjects, which means sit down and shut up. We are nationalizing fossil, fossil fuels. We are limiting how much red meat you can eat and how far you can drive your car. Is this what has to happen now to maintain legitimacy?
2: Well, he says, okay, so he defines authoritarianism early. He says, uh, authoritarian in a fairly generic and expansive sense throughout throughout to refer to political arrangements or modes of governance that are illiberal, i.e. rights and freedom constraining, uh, undemocratic and characterized by a concentration of executive power. You're getting the vaccine. Fuck you.
1: But this—this this is what I'm <laughs> getting at. Because what occurred to me originally is, when it comes to these kinds of questions about who is going to address social problems, including ecological problems, what immediately came to my mind was uh, the Sen paradigm. Uh, Sen wrote a very famous book. Uh, uh, sorry, a very famous book on famines, right? Where he pointed out that one of the things that distinguishes democrats uh, from authoritarians is democrats at least have to give a shit uh, about their people to a certain extent which means they have a certain degree of incentives to actually try to manage social problems, which means even if they do that slowly, you can be guaranteed that at least everyone's voice is going to be nominally listened to, and there's going to be some interest shown in their well-being, including, I would argue, on ecological issues, potentially. Uh, You don't necessarily have the same level of responsiveness in authoritarian regimes, which very quickly become kleptocratic and inefficient uh, because they don't have any need to respond to at the interest of anything more than the group that basically holds them in power. But do you think now, that that's think actually that true of actually? Has, that
2: doesn't seem true of existing. Like I think that, well, that I think that's that's that, what's a lot, that it doesn't seem true of okay. all
1: authoritarian regimes. Like Singapore's a I mean, good tr- And isn't
2: his argument and it No, it doesn't. It doesn't seem true of either. That's like, it's true. So I think because isn't I mean, isn't his point too about foundational legitimacy that it actually like providing safety and security means that like, to some extent, you care about the people, right? Because like, as soon as you can't guarantee I mean, even Machiavelli, I think, like, talks about this stuff, right? Like the moment that you can't ensure that like you're in trouble as as a leader, right? So like, you have to care about safety and security. Otherwise, like, you're fucked. It doesn't matter what kind of regime you have.
1: Sure. But this is the point that Sen makes about famines, right? Which is that, uh, There was an argument made in the 1970s and the 1980s that authoritarian regimes might be better at dealing with famines uh, because, for exactly all the reasons listed in this article, right, Uh, they didn't have to go through all these democratic procedures, they could be immediately responsive to the people, Uh, they had more powers at their behest in order to try to give food to the people. And he said that most authoritarian regimes actually did really badly compared to democracies, including uh, in developing countries when it came to resolving famines. Uh, And the reason is because democratic regimes had at least some impetus to have to care for the people. They didn't always, and they didn't always do so successfully, but on balance, they did better than their competitors. Uh, now, I don't think that that's true of all authoritarian regimes, and I think China and Singapore are really problem cases. But again, if you look at this as applied to the environmental issue, I don't think the eco-record of most authoritarian regimes is really all that glowing, right? Uh, Russia, Belarus, uh, I would argue also China, haven't done a comparably good job. In fact, many times in ways they've done a worse job of environment. Uh, managing environmental issues uh, than democratic states. So I'm not sure the empirical case has been made for his perspective.
3: I think there's an important distinction to be made here because you know that's an important perspective to take on what he's saying here. But it's also characteristic of a lot of the a lot of the reaction especially from sort of mainstream political science is that there's no empirical data to back up these claims to evaluate whether democracies are doing better than authoritarian Governments, although at, I would argue you
1: know, there is empirical data, and that's that we're doing at least marginally better. I mean, if you look at the uh,
2: I don't think that's clear. Either. Democracies. It's not clear at all.
3: Well, I mean, and, yeah. And where is that data coming from, and how much can we trust it, and all those sorts of questions that go into the empirical side.
2: But what about COVID? But I mean, I mean p- COVID's a good example. China did like did way better <laughs> than everybody. Yeah, but, but they,
1: Russia, but you know, but Russia and Brazil we're, and Turkey. Yeah. Iran, Again, a number of this sort of worse, empiricist,
2: right?
3: data-driven yeah. approach is part of the problem because the re- uh, the problem with the reaction to this article because the point of bringing political legitimacy into this because the bottom line point here is that if democracies fail to deal with climate change in the mm-hmm. future, not mm-hmm. the past. That's where our data comes from. Our data yeah. comes from the past. That's a good point. If if in going into the future, if democracies fail to deal with this and Governments fundamentally are based on some form of legitimacy, then, you know, the failure to maintain the safety and security of its people will delegitimize democracy Mm -hmm. as a political option, right? And that's the bigger danger he's pointing to. That we need to adopt some authoritarian measures, which uh, he often expresses as relaxing certain democratic procedures or certain democratic assumptions. We have to relax certain ones, adopt certain level of authoritarianism, which I don't see how telling people not to eat fucking cheeseburgers every day is authoritarian at all. Sorry, that's (laughs) flippant. But I mean, you know, don't drive pre-1972 fucking like muscle cars that get one mile to the gallon don't do that, that oh, that's very authoritarian okay but whatever we need a little bit of that in here if we're going to save democracy he says to be clear the argument presented here not is not an endorsement of authoritarianism but a warning should we wish to avoid legitimating authoritarian politics we must do all we can to prevent emergencies from arising that can only be solved with such means so the real question is can we solve climate? Change? change just based on democratic means alone or do we need some authoritarian you know input into our approach yeah. to the think, climate emergency thank which you it should be called for getting us back on point
2: no, that's a really important point, and I think that's the point that a lot of the reaction missed. Right, a lot of the yeah, reaction... they
3: all say he's just he's just endorsing authoritarianism. Full stop. He's like, not that's, at all. That's like the essence of the reaction, and it was surprising because some of those statements came from like like tenured political scientists at various universities Well, would scientists say those being
2: being the keyword there that's the thing and yeah. they're not political theorists yeah,
3: the empirical people the people based on historical data let's go look at the track records and then evaluate the argument like okay that's a legitimate way of approaching it but that's not the fucking point of the article. evaluation ground that we should be using for this argument because it's not a data driven empirical argument that's
0: what Matt's doing too so he's going to defend himself
3: yeah Matt's go- going back to it but it's part of the problem with the reaction is taking that perspective.
1: I, that's exactly what he says at the beginning of the article. And by the way, it's also implicit in the argument of the people he appeals to, people like Jason Brennan, right? Which is that if you're going to argue for whether democracy or whether or not soft authoritarianism or epistocratic authoritarianism resolves the climate traces more effectively uh, and secures foundational legitimacy in that respect, that is ultimately an empirical question, Right. Uh, And I absolutely agree with you that there's no way of knowing whether or not whether we adopted the measures he's talking can actually have the advantages he's discussing because we don't have data about the future. But we do have data about the past and it's shown that the case for these kinds of measures isn't exactly a unanimous or clear, we should implement them because it is actually going to be more effective. In fact, I would argue that on balance, when it comes to whether or not democratic procedures or whether or not authoritarian procedures are more effective at securing the conditions for foundational legitimacy generally, or actually advancing environmentally friendly policies. Holy fuck, uh,
0: I am getting don't look up vibes from this conversation right now. He's saying democracy will not be legitimate if we're extinct. No.
3: Yeah. If they f- yeah, fail that, to no, protect no. the safety and security The point I'm trying to make is that people.
1: historically, there's really no evidence that he actually meets the empirical threshold that he's talking about. In fact, I would say the evidence, broadly speaking, not in every specific case, but broadly speaking, is against him, so he would need to make a much firmer empirical case. Which, by the way, again is the threshold he establishes at the very. Opening but he's not. Of the but article. I don't.
3: I don't well, think that that's actually. wait till we're all dead and then make your empirical case. Then.
2: Or- no, 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 but no, but but Matt, I agree with you. Like he does talk about that as being an empirical question, but I think like the point he's making about like the certain kinds of measures that might be necessary. Is specifically for the purpose of saving democracy so he's like if we're gonna save contingent legitimacy like the kinds of things that we care about these measures might be needed i mean there's a reason why covid we did not all go to the voter box and be like okay like let's let's all consent to these measures right it's like we have a government that just decided to put these measures in um and, and like and and we and like we don't really we're not really consenting to them because it's a way of like preserving and i think he's saying that like Climate change is probably is is potentially going to be one of those things that we're going to need to we're going to need to to uh, to deal with by using those measures. I don't know if he's actually.
1: Sure. Sure. And I, I don't necessarily disagree that he might be right in some of those instances. And I actually think that there are mechanisms, for instance, in the Canadian Constitution uh, and every liberal democratic constitution. As yeah, I think he, he talks out, about that, too. Precisely yeah. those kinds of instances yeah. and, measures, and I'm not opposed to those kinds of like measures that. being enacted. It's just on the broader point uh, that's kind of raised by of the uh, in the article about whether there's an empirical case to be made for epistocratic authoritarianism. Uh, but, he's also, but he's also, but he's also
2: not. But I think maybe he's not talking about regimes as much, right? I mean, the first line in in the in the abstract is is he's not. It's not is our authoritarian regimes ever legitimate? He says, is authoritarian power ever legitimate, right? So like using authoritarian power. Um, like, is that ever legitimate, right? So, and I think like, like democracies can use authoritarian power. I mean, you're right that he does. He does also ask the question of like, are authoritarian governments more the, like better at, at dealing with this And the things.
3: baseline is that it's not because of contingent legitimacy, right? Not foundational legitimacy. If we look at it from the perspective of foundational legitimacy, then authoritarian power could be justified. If if it were to be used in the interest of preserving the safety and security of people otherwise living in a democracy, right? And and if the the problem is if we choose not to use any authoritarian measures whatsoever, and shit gets worse, shit gets fucked, whatever the 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 complex civilization is unable to continue, then like that's bad on two grounds because one, you know, the obvious reason that we're all in a fucking post-apocalyptic wasteland. But the other one is that democracy will no longer be legitimate because it can't guarantee the basic safety and security of people, never mind all the other luxuries that come on top of that, like rights and freedom and liberty and all these sorts of terms that I that are un, sort of defined.
1: The point that I would make in response to that is one of the reasons why the climate crisis is as bad as it is, is precisely that political elites don't feel any need to be responsive to their citizenry because there aren't mechanisms in place to actually impose any kind of sanctions on them for not actually looking after the interests of their people. Uh, so I would actually point to this as an example of where we would need something like more uh, democracy in order to compel political elites. And for that matter, also corporate elites that uh, sounds
2: appealing to me but there's also no empirical data to support that either but no, although no, i no, although i will i will say that that's appealing into yeah and
1: I, but i would say that there is some uh, empirical data to uh, this back this up and this is the point that i was getting at again with famines uh, when it comes to the ability of governments and the willingness of governments to actually respond to major large scale crises that if, impact their population generally uh, and that require global responses, democracies and democracies that are more responsive to their citizens have tended to do better than authoritarian regimes. Now, this isn't an argument about taking any of the kind of steps that he's taken to, suggesting. I think there are moments and the COVID example is a good one where governments should just act uh, and try to apologize for it later uh, if people are pissed off. Uh, But if your argument is there needs to be an empirical case for why this is going to work, you need to make a very firm empirical case. And while I think this is theoretically interesting, I don't think that there's any empirical data at all uh, to suggest that this is going to work in the way that he's talking about.
3: But the empirical case is difficult because then you get into questions like, well, do we really live in a democracy? Does, does Europe or North America contain a democracy, for example? I mean, that would be like an empirical question you'd have to ask. Do we currently live in a democracy right now? I, I mean, I with so. all the arguments coming out about the United States being an oligarchy or democratic backsliding and things like that, it, there's pretty good reason to believe that we don't even live in a democracy. So we have to address this from the level of theory and not empirical evidence.
1: Sure, but I mean, let's, let's take the United States as a paradigm case. The United States is the world's biggest polluter right now. Uh, there's data after data suggests that a majority of the American population wants the government to take more stride and action on climate change, really wants the government to take more stride and action on climate change. And the government isn't taking stride and action on climate change, even with the election of a Democratic candidate.
2: Those opinion polls are almost useless because if you ask them differently and you say, okay, are you willing to have an increase in your taxes of 5%? The, 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 it's going to be less than a majority at that point.
1: S- sure. But which there, is what's there, going to be necessary. Th- 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 sure. But there is a Democratic willingness to do something about climate change, how, what the trade-offs would be and how complicated would it would have to be. You, can, you can
2: tell anybody, do you want to address a thing that's bad? And they're all there's going to be a majority opinion to say yes sure. to that. It's but but i am say
1: that overall over the, cl- uh, the last <laughs> couple of decades, generally speaking, public opinion has moved more and more in the direction of saying that we need to take green out- measures. But the, my for me, the interesting question is, why hasn't that taken place? Uh, and the argument I would make is it's not because the United States is a failed democracy. Uh, Sorry, it's not because the United States is a democracy and people just aren't interested in doing anything. The reason is, and this has been well backed up by empirical data again, Martin Gillen's uh, study, Affluence and Interest, is a good one, uh, where he points out that the ordinary citizen who wants to do something about climate change has almost no impact on public policy whatsoever. Uh, The Koch brothers have an impact on policy. Trump has an impact on policy. And people like the Kochs and the Trumps have a big impact on policy. But the ordinary person doesn't right? Uh, and if the United States were more democratic than it is right now, uh, and actually the will of the people was more directly paid attention to, we probably would have seen uh, more proactive measures on climate issues. Uh, but we haven't because the United States is not a sufficiently democratic country. It's an author- quasi-authoritarian plutocracy uh, that doesn't give a shit about what the impact of climate change is going to be on most of their people, right?
2: That's a little that's a little optimistic to me. I mean, I, I sounds
3: like the article got it all backwards saying we haven't We actually the reason is uh, that we haven't had enough democracy and we've had too much authoritarian power. I find well, that I mean, to be I
2: find that to be super utopian about human beings. Like I, I just I don't think that's true at all. I mean, you see these opinion polls. It's like, yeah, people, of course, you, you're like, do you want to address this bad thing? Everyone's going to say yes. But then it's like you get into the nitty gritty. It's like, OK, like. Are you cool with never eating a cheeseburger again are you cool with raising your taxes by 10 percent? are you cool with actually what's necessary to actually fix the problem and fuck your democracy it's not going to work at all
1: (laughs) sure and absolutely there would be there would be difficulties when it comes to trade-offs but i do think that overall if you wanted the u.s government which is the world's biggest polluter to be more responsive to the climate crisis uh, and you compared what elites want the government to do, people like the Koch brothers, versus what the average citizen wants them to do. You'd be far better off trusting the average citizen uh, than you were the people who are actually in charge of the U.S. government right now, uh, or who actually have an impact on policy, which are the one percent.
2: I agree with all that, but I just I'm, I think it's way too optimistic to be like, oh, if we had more democracy, like people are gonna, and like backing it up with opinion polls that are that are like pretty much meaningless. Like it's just. I mean, like to actually you have to pull people on, like what's actually going to be necessary, what they're going to need to give up. And and it's like, and you know, and you you need adults in the room to be like, sorry, you're going to have to give that up. Uh, Absolutely.
1: And and I think these are circumstances where some of the ideas he's talking about might actually be useful. Uh, For instance, having something like an epistocratic council uh, of environmental issues, like experts who would mobilize democratic energies uh, and then say, okay, this is what you want us to do. This is how we have to carry it out, like it or lump it. That might be some kind of compromise that we can make.
2: Right? I had a similar, like a somewhat similar intuition to you, Matt, that like, I'm not sure the empirical case because like my, my, but my, I mean, my intuition afterwards was certainly not. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that more democracy, like I just don't see that necessarily being the thing that's going to solve it. My takeaway was like, yeah, I don't think authoritarianism is going to necessarily work either because I think there's yeah. going to be all kinds of outrage. I, I was just like, oh yeah, we're fucked. Like, like my, my, <laughs> my reaction to the article was like, nothing's going to work until it's too late and like we're, we're only going to see action when like the effects are so undeniable and it's probably going to be a point of no return where then it's just going to be trying to like minimize the irreversible yeah. damage that's already been done because like until like i just don't think that anything like like more democracy like yeah. pfft, that's not sure, gonna but uh, work no, no. That's, that's while we're waiting around to
0: talk about this some more and build democracy then the asteroid has already hit the earth. No, but yeah, here,
1: exactly. the, i think that you've misinterpreted the point of that movie, and I'll explain why. And we can get into no. this more next no, no, week. No, no, we're going to do that, that next that, week. That, yeah. yeah, but I just want to point this out. That movie is about a bunch of ground level people who desperately want and have the support of a lot of people, by the way, to actually do something about the asteroid. And the people that fuck them over and say we're not going to do anything about it isn't the demos. Uh, it's the rich assholes who say yeah, it is. we can monetize this. Ariana Grande. This. Well, yeah, well, no, she sings the song at the end, which yeah, is the song which
0: made a big difference to everybody, yeah. didn't it? it,
1: it just like this it conversation
0: is going to make a big difference but, I mean, to our the, topic here. The,
1: the whole, you know, the, the movie does Why don't really we just do
0: of- democracy properly? No, but, we I, like, I, we don't have time for that
1: either. No, but the movie does a really good job of showing that that most people in the world, including a lot of Americans, including grassroots activists, want the government to immediately do something about this asteroid. Uh, but it's because whatever his name, the Elon Musk guy uh, and the president decide, fuck that, we're going to monetize that in some way, come what may, uh, that the whole world gets destroyed. Uh, so... Adam McKay, nice democratic socialist, Bernie Sanders supporter, I think would actually say the point of that movie is, again, ordinary people know that this is a problem and it needs to be solved and it needs to be solved right fucking away. The problem isn't them. The problem is Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill and Elon Musk wannabe uh, who decide that the best idea is to send robots up to mine the damn thing because they think they can make $50 trillion off of it.
3: You know, I think the the point... Here, the problem with just like, you know, evoking the average ordinary person Mm -hmm, too, mm -hmm. is that he gives plenty of examples of supposed authoritarian measures that are being rejected by ordinary people, i.e. wearing masks, social distancing, lockdowns, all these sorts of things that are perceived as authoritarian measures to combat COVID, which he's using as a kind of microcosm of climate change. Is that ordinary people are rejecting them? People who are clearly self-identifying as democratic do. and libertarian, or whatever, like a kind of radical form of democracy. And well, I mean, some people, vaccine, right? So, like so. some people got Donald Trump elected, right? And he remains the figurehead of the Republican Party. Yeah, but and a majority some people, people don't like him. to wear masks, and yet they seem to be dominating right now that perspective and i think it's better to look at it in terms of this right we have okay let's say we let's say for the sake of argument that we have democracy but the people in those democracies are rejecting what they're perceiving as authoritarian measures like lockdowns for instance i can probably look out my window and see an anti lockdown poster from my fucking living room yet yeah the problem here is that these measures are being perso- perceived as authoritarian and therefore illegitimate because our baseline for legitimacy is contingent legitimacy and not foundational legitimacy lockdown's going to keep you safe too fucking bad cuz it impinges on my freedom so i'm going to reject it i mean that's the whole problem is your foundation of what measures utilizing kinds of democracies, using authoritarian power to restrict our movements and our freedoms. People are rejecting that like a Gombin does violently by saying that that's just the first step towards fascism, right? And he's making an argument. Let's look at it a different way. Let's say these measures are not for these are to preserve the legitimacy of democracy, mm-hmm. not to ruin it, not to get rid of it, not to destroy it, but to preserve it, because if we fail, then authoritarian is going to start looking real tasty to a lot of people. And we already know a lot of leftist folks who are in the sort of Marxist, Leninist, China sympathizing ambit who would welcome that yeah. kind of, yeah. kind of cultural development, right? And and I don't care whether it's good or bad, whatever, fuck that. But he's that's like the argument he's sort of putting forward, right, is if we don't convince people i don't know he's not trying to convince him if we don't convince people that these measures are not a suspension of democracy but a supplementing democracy in order to make it work better then maybe people will be a little more you know people will be conducive to going along with things that the government wants to say but his, his wants them to do and like his his examples are like pretty modest in my view like you know epistocracy standard for instance that governments should act based on the best available evidence i mean why aren't we doing that already that's not authoritarian
2: i'll bet you when the shit gets so like like maybe we can make a little bet now and we'll see if like 30 40 years who's right but like i'll bet you that you know when the climate crisis is so bad that it's like undeniable the first countries to take strong measures is going to be china uh it's going to be the authoritarian countries who are going to be the first to bring in broad sweeping changes to try to stem the bleeding um yeah. and we're going to be fucking holding our dicks you know taking our time deliberating about what the best way to do it is
0: yeah here's some empirical evidence china saw that video games were bad for kids and they stopped them from playing it
2: <laughs> good good
0: move china <laughs> i like it i like it i mean
1: didn't they used to have like those wow world of warcraft farms like located there where you could get a career just playing warcraft and well it's only items? kids
0: that under 18 going to college so you have to be yeah. 18 before you're allowed to wow farm or whatever Le- league uh, of yeah. legends farm whatever it is now these days sure. crypto well, and, and, probably hey, I'm, sorry
1: I, I'm sorry i got angry about that kind of thing it's, no no it's, it's cool not, it's, it's not Matt, sure i
0: it's, i never object to you getting angry i object to you taking the air out of out of something interesting and making it about this (laughs) micro thing that i don't even recognize i didn't even see it that's why i was getting frustrated
1: that's fair but i I do want to stand by my point that i do think the empirical case needs to be made we know we
0: We got it all All right we're gonna wrap it up i don't think okay i noticed this because we got um there's ratings on spotify now and we have never asked this before but we do have an ask because I searched philosophy and our podcast didn't show up because it doesn't have enough you know, clicks or, or whatever. So if you're listening to this and if you like us, and even if you don't like us, help a brother out. Give us a five-star and write about how this has changed your life on whatever podcast <laughs> thing you're looking for. Um, <laughs> Even if we don't deserve five stars, even if you think we're three stars... <laughs> For Super today, fun. we're five stars, and then we'll make a commitment to you to get up to five stars eventually, okay? And if we yeah. haven't changed your life yet, it's coming. It's my you it's could, my, you, it's my you, guarantee as Plastic Pills that we will eventually change your life.
2: If you think we actually only deserve three stars, um, but you put five stars, like DM Pills. And no, no, no. no. Him, DM then- Matt.
0: If you have negative feedback, <laughs> Matt is on Twitter, at <laughs> He would be happy to debate you um, until you're done. Yeah. <laughs> however long it takes, so all <laughs> negative feedback goes to Matt McManus on Twitter, and Matt, all positive no feedback goes to whatever you're listening to this on. Thank you, I yeah. appreciate it.
2: Thank if you we, very much. Uh, if we get to five
3: stars, I'm gonna go fucking solve dox the, the shit climate out of you crisis. <laughs> I really will. If
1: I start getting bombarded by like nasty things. I'm not. I'm gonna go like full. Like, oh, by the way, this is his address. Just mail everything to him.
0: Oh, you got to yeah. put that that <laughs> message acceptance thing on Twitter where you have to approve it before you actually get it. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I hope like... you have that. You have that, right? Yeah. What, yeah.
1: me? <laughs> yeah. No. What? No, I, got, I got you got. people. All right.
0: Well, we'll wrap it up there. That was a that bit was of fun. a grab bag episode, but we had a lot of catching up to do. So uh, thank you to all our listeners. Patrons, don't worry. Something's coming out soon. We're trying to get it done this week yeah and, so. and,
2: and if and ross mitiga if you're listening to this you know let us know uh yeah. let us know how much matt got it wrong or if or, or, or. <laughs>
0: you can come on the pod we
2: promise yeah, matt won't be yeah. here well uh, no, we'll, we'll, no, send back to, we'll send back to interviews brennan
0: are you
1: kidding me if anything i should be the one here we'll have a debate and we'll have a long argument and eventually i will just grind him down to the ground uh through sheer exhaustion
3: as I do. <laughs> yeah. You guys can open up your Excel sheets and bring off the data. Uh, thanks, guys. It was a good talk. Let's get
0: to.
2: Uh, the oh, shit. Thing. We're at an hour and four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Let's fuck- definitely stop. It'll just be a bit of an <laughs> edit. Yeah. All right. Yeah. See All right. you guys. See ya.
3: Wrapping up. Bye. Okay.